Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker. I am an author, a speaker, and the professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. But what I really love doing is having geeky conversations with people about all kinds of things. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members of IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. Ah, these are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. Get ready to talk about something a little odd. In this episode, I am joined by Dr. Nicholas Shazer, who recently released a new IBC course called Resurrection in Jewish Text and Traditions. Resurrection. Now that is a bold choice. And can we all simply agree from the beginning that the idea of resurrection is weird? I mean, someone dying and coming back to life, I have so many questions. And that is not even taking into account the afterlife. However, I will say you can dabble in the afterlife by logging on to IBC's website and selecting the hot topic seminar called Jews and Greeks on the Underworld and Afterlife. But today we are focusing on resurrection, and I am glad Dr. Shazer is the one taking this subject on because bodily resurrection is one of the strangest things to discuss, yet he does not shy away. So I started the conversation not where he starts his course, but where I am most curious. What kind of hints are there in the Hebrew Bible of resurrection? Can we point to a time period where the ideas of resurrection are starting to kind of bubble up to the surface? Well, first of all, certainly Jesus' disciples did not make up the notion of resurrection. Uh, they've got a long Jewish tradition on which they're leaning for the notion of bodily resurrection. Um, a lot of scholars will point first to Daniel 12.2 in the Tanakh. Um, Daniel is quite a late text chronologically, historically, around the 160s BCE. And so um, they'll look at Daniel 12.2, which says the multitudes of those who sleep in the dust will awake, some of them to everlasting life and some to everlasting shame and abhorrence. And so that's a pretty clear notion of a future universal resurrection of, bro of both the righteous and the wicked. But again, that shows up in Daniel, which is quite a late text. So most scholars will say, well, this idea of resurrection sort of developed over the course of Israelites' religious history. And it's not until we get to the Second Temple period with a text like Daniel, where we get something that's, you know, um, very overt about resurrection. And on the, one, on the one hand, that's not wrong, particularly if we're talking about universal resurrection. That is a future day on which everybody gets out of the ground, shakes dust off of their shoulders, and is judged. People die, and they spend time post-mortem in Sheol or in Greek Hades, and then they're pulled out of that at a future time, given new resurrection bodies, and then judged here on a renewed earth. Uh, so you, you do get some of this in, say, um, Isaiah 66, the final chapter of Isaiah, the idea that there's going to be some sort of new heavens and new earth. So that's the, the same kind of language that the book of Revelation reuses. This originally comes from Isaiah 65 and 66. And the notion is that, is that 
pretty much everybody's going to be around in this new heaven and new earth. There's not explicit resurrection language, but there is language about those who have rebelled against God. In the final verse, this is 6624, ending up in a kind of fiery pit. And so it's this kind of imagery that in the second temple period develops, and certainly we get it in the New Testament and the Gospels and beyond into the rabbis, this idea of a kind of post-mortem judgment period in which the righteous are saved after resurrection and the wicked go into, into fire. We, we, get, we get this in the Gospels. We get this in Revelation, for example. So it, it does develop vis-a-vis an afterlife. That's a developing idea. But the truth is, is that far prior to Daniel, we have instances in the Hebrew Bible of people being raised from the dead. And it's very, very explicit. So that as the notion of resurrection, the fact that like someone could die and then be raised from the dead, that's an early Hebrew Bible text. That's in, uh, you know, the prophetic cycles of Elijah and Elisha, for example. Uh, if you'll remember, this is 1 Kings chapter 17, and Elijah is it's in the midst of a famine, and he goes to Zarephath, and uh, so the non-Israelite land meets a non-Israelite woman and her son, and the son dies, and Elijah stretches out over him three times uh, because three is the number of like a climactic event in Hebrew thought. So there's no um, there's no mistake that Jesus is in is in the ground for three days before his own resurrection. Uh, that is the the Gospels are drawing on that three number with resurrection as well. And so he uh, Elijah stretches himself out over the child three times, and the child's life comes back into him. Uh, Elijah even prays to God, let this child's life come back into him. So the child is absolutely dead and absolutely raised from the dead. Elijah's successor, Elisha, in 2 Kings chapter 4, does something very similar with the son of a Shunammite woman, uh, raises him from the dead. And it's actually much more visceral in the Elisha version. It says that, you know, Elisha stretches his body over the child, hands on hands, eyes on eyes, mouth on mouth. Secretly, these are some of my favorite Bible passages because they are so weird. And I love pointing out how weird they are to people. Strange details for a strange event. But I digress. It's so strange. And I think and I think the child, so the, the, the flesh of the child sort of starts to warm up, it says. And then I think this is the text that the child sneezes. A series of times. So seven, this is more numerical stuff in Hebrew thought, seven being the number of completeness or perfection. So uh, I think it's almost kind of a jocular and funny way of saying that Elisha has done a perfect job in raising this child from the dead. But, but again, we, so we've got, we've got explicit references to prophets raising people from the dead. But as you noted, Cindy, this is individualistic as opposed to universal, like in something we, like in Daniel. One more very cool one is in 2 Kings 13. The prophet Elisha is already dead, and another man dies, and they bury him in the same grave as Elisha. And it says the, the, the moment that the corpse of the man touched Elisha's bones, the man was raised from the dead, stood on his feet and was raised from the dead. So First and Second Kings are not like late, late texts. You know, they are... So this is early on material in the Hebrew Bible. I'll just add a couple more just to round this out. You'll get language um, like in the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel 37, there's a very famous passage called the Valley of the Dry Bones in which God says to Ezekiel, puts Ezekiel into a valley and there's all these bones there. And God asks Ezekiel, you know, son of man, Ben Adam, you know, mortal person, can these bones live? And Ezekiel says, oh Lord, only you know. And then 
there's this illustration of the bones coming back together and um, sinews and flesh uh, being on the bones. And it's, you know, the song, you know, the hip bones connected to the whatever bone, you know, that, that, that comes from this chapter, actually. That comes from this imagery. It really does. So the bones come back together. And what it is, it's, it's a metaphor for the return of the Israelites from exile in Babylon. And over time, that material gets what we would call literalized. So you can read the Dead Sea Scrolls in the Second Temple period, and the Dead Sea Scroll writers are referring to Ezekiel 37. Yes, they know it's metaphor for coming back from exile, but they concretize it. And they say, this actually shows that one day universally, you know, we're going to be raised from the dead. That is, our bones and our sinews are going to come back and we're going to get out of the grave. Because that's another phrase in Ezekiel 37 that's used over and over. I'm going to bring you out of your graves. I'm going to bring you out of your graves. So we get all sorts of language to that end. And then lastly, we get kind of flutterings of God's ability to raise people from the dead throughout the Tanakh as well. If you read the Psalms, for example, I mean, you pulled my life up out of Sheol, the psalmist will say. Hannah, Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2 in her famous song of praise for having Samuel, which is then reiterated in Mary's Magnificat in Luke's gospel. Hannah says, you know, Lord, you, you can bring down to Sheol and raise up again. There is a line in the prophet Hosea, in Hosea chapter 6, the beginning of chapter 6, where collectively Israel has said, you know, the Lord has struck us and the Lord will revive us. Um, after two days, God will raise us up. And on the third day, we'll be raised to live with God. And so there's that three-day resurrection motif that we saw with Elijah as well. And this is the same three-day resurrection motif that, um, that pops back up with Jesus in the Gospels. One last one would be the classical story of Jonah and the large fish, not the whale, by the way, the the dog gadol, the big fish in Jonah. And, uh, and Jonah's vomited out of the fish after, after three days and three nights. Jesus himself in Matthew 12, 40 and 41 says, just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights, so is the Son of Man going to be in the heart of the earth before resurrection. So we get all sorts of things that the gospel writers and the disciples would have known about Israel's scriptures and would have drawn on for making sense of what they believed to be the resurrection of Jesus after his death. Now, if you're like me, you're thinking, ah, that's cool, but is that what was intended? For instance, if we go back to what Nick said about what the writers of the Dead Sea Scrolls said, they knew that something like Ezekiel 37 was a metaphor, but they solidified it to mean there is a universal rising from the dead. Well, how do we know what the original writers thought? And if they thought there would be a resurrection— so saying something like God can kill and bring back to life might be talking about the ultimate all-encompassing power of God. So are the later communities manipulating the early text and developing it beyond what the early writers even thought about? You know, I think a lot of it would depend on, you know, the dating of some of the Hebrew Bible texts and where we're, where we are there. But like, so like, for example, in, uh, in Greco-Roman literature, you have people going down to Hades, which is, turns out to be the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Sheol, the realm of the dead. So that's what the gospel writers use when they talk about Sheol. So for example, in Luke chapter 16, the story of rich man, the rich man and Lazarus, the story is that both of them go to Hades in the Greek. Unfortunately, in many English translations, it says hell, which is just a very imprecise translation, but the idea would be in Greek literature, though, so people also go to Hades, the realm of the dead, 
And every so often, somebody gets out. Every so often, somebody comes back up out of there. Hercules, for example. Hercules is, you know, part God. So, so there's that. But Jesus is, is both human and, and divine in, you know, in the Gospels. So not wildly dissimilar there. The, the point is, is that other cultures, particularly Greco-Roman ones, they knew about the idea. And for sure, the God, God or the gods, depending on whom you're worshiping, can do that. They have the power to do that. Like, again, Hannah says God can bring down to Sheol and raise up. Raise up from where? Raise up out of Sheol. It, it's not just a calc for God can give, have people give birth to other people. Um, it really means getting up out of Sheol. And actually, the rabbis, the, the, after the Dead Sea Scroll writers, after the Gospel writers, the rabbis like to search around in the, in the Torah, in the five books of Moses, trying to find references to resurrection. So, Cindy, this goes to your point about, is it originally what the Hebrew Bible writers meant, or is it there's some sort of manipulation or theological expansion going on? One of the coolest ones is that they're referencing this phrase in Deuteronomy 32, which you know well, Cindy, being a Deuteronomy specialist. And, uh, and God says, I kill and I wound and I he- I kill and I make alive, I wound and I heal. And the rabbis take this and they go, okay, God says, I kill and I make alive. And one of the rabbis steps in and says, you know, this might sound like what's being said here is that, you know, people die and then people are born and the circle of life kind of goes on and God is sort of above that circle of life. But then they, they note that, yeah, so the first line is I kill and I make alive. The second one is I wound and I heal. And the rabbis say, okay, but if God is wounding and then healing, God's got to be healing that wound that is made. So that is, it's a single person. It's the same person who's being wounded as, as is being healed. Hence, due to what's called Hebrew parallelism, we need to reread, I kill and I make alive, is God doing that to the same person? So this then, for the rabbis, is a, uh, a proof of resurrection in the Torah. And they actually say this refutes those who deny that, that resurrection is a concept found in the Torah. And who might deny that? Well, we know that the Sadducees, for example, would have denied that. And, and um, the, the rabbis who, who uh, traditionally the, the, the Pharisees are kind of the, the foundation group for the later rabbis. Now, there's some historical questions about that, which I won't go into, but you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And in Jesus' time in the first century, these two groups did not agree on much. And we actually get vestiges of those disagreements in the rabbinic literature, in the Mishnah. So, for example, there'll be fights between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You know, you, you Sadducees say the Pharisees, you hypocrites, you believe this. And the Sadducees say, well, we take umbrage with you, Pharisees, you're hypocrites because you believe this. It actually sounds a lot like Jesus's woes against the scribes and Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. Um, very, very similar language. So we know that the Sadducees and the Pharisees are kind of at loggerheads, and we get kind of resonance of that in the later rabbinic literature. And so the, the, the Gospels and Acts tell us pretty explicitly the Sadducees, the, that is the group associated with the temple, uh, don't believe in resurrection. Now, exactly what that means is kind of unclear, but they're not seeing resurrection. There's also a question of whether the, the authority for them lies only in the, in the Torah. This comes from Josephus, but it kind of depends on a reading, however you're reading Josephus. But the point is, is there's something about the Sadducees that they would have been skeptical. They would have raised an eyebrow about the idea of resurrection on the one hand and the idea that resurrection would have appeared in the five books of Moses in the Torah. And so what the rabbis say is, ah, this Deuteronomy passage and others like it are refuting those who would say 
that there's no resurrection in the Torah. And the rabbis have many other examples of this as well. Okay, so in a quick fashion, we went through some of the Hebrew Bible examples and then some gospel-related things, but I'm noticing a gap in the historical timeline. The earlier Second Temple period, and here I am thinking specifically towards the end of the Seleucid Empire's control over the land of the Bible. This is a time when the Seleucids were done giving Jews religious freedom, and they were full on trying to destroy the Jewish identity by obliterating all Jewish practices that reinforced their identity. So I asked Dr. Shazer to take a step back and talk to us about how that particular context influenced the growing Jewish idea of resurrection. So the Seleucids are a group of uh, sort of Greek-ish rulers, um, Syrian Greek rulers. After the death of Alexander the Great, in 323 BCE, there are two groups mainly vying for that ancient Near Eastern area, the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. And the Seleucids end up kind of wresting authority from the Ptolemies of the land of Israel. And in the books of the Maccabees, so there are four books of Maccabees uh, written at various times. First and second Maccabees are, are certainly written before the New Testament, whereas the latter two, it's, there's, it's up for debate. But um, these books of the Maccabees, particularly 1st and 2nd Maccabees, would have been in circulation long before the time of Jesus. And also they end up in the kind of official Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, that the New Testament writers were using. So they would have been familiar with it. And in fact, we've got a reason to think that um, originally some of it was written in Hebrew, this Maccabean literature. And it, it seems that Certainly Mark and Matthew, for example, are drawing on, Cindy, you talked about the martyr narratives in the Maccabees. It seems that certainly Mark and Matthew are drawing on the Maccabean literature for their understanding of the reason for the cross. So uh, Jesus says in um, Mark 10.45 and then also in Matthew 20.28 that the Son of Man did not come to be served but to serve and to give his life, his psyche, as a ransom for many. And in the Maccabean literature, particularly 2nd Maccabees and 4th Maccabees, it says that these seven brothers, um, and they also have a mother who's also martyred um, under the Seleucid persecution, that these seven brothers served as ransoms for the people of Israel to turn away the, the, you know, the unfortunate wrath that had come upon the people. So, it's pretty clear that, you know, the, the, the phrase is from Jesus, in, according to Mark and Matthew. So Jesus seems to have drawn on this tradition for his own self-understanding as well, that a, that a person could die on behalf of a group of people um, as an atoning sacrifice. And, um, and so what the martyrs in Maccabees say, like in 2 Maccabees chapter 7, for example, if someone wants to look that up, is that several of them, before they die, they're tortured by the Seleucids because they won't submit to the Seleucid persecution, which, which involved a kind of dismantling of Jewish custom and ritual. So the Seleucids were trying to get them to break the kashrut laws, the, the kosher laws in Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14, by getting them to eat certain unclean foods, 
or they had abolished uh, circumcision. They had gone into the temple and defiled it by sacrificing pigs on the altar, all sorts of wild stuff happening. And these seven boys kind of uh, stand as a bulwark against the overtaking of Jewish tradition. And they say, we're dying on behalf of our tradition. And some of them even say, we're going to die, but we know that because we're giving our lives for God, that we're going to get our bodies back and God is going to raise us from the dead. In fact, one of the brothers says, you know, I'm not going to defile my hands with unclean food, nor am I going to defile my, my mouth, my tongue with unclean food. But I know that I'm going to get my hands and my tongue back in the resurrection. And, and so, again, a very, very clear, also pre-Danielic understanding of resurrection from the dead. And in this case, it's not merely individual, like we see in Elijah and Elisha. It's at least seven or eight plus the mother. It's this idea that the righteous martyrs of Israel, those who give their lives for their people, they will be collectively raised from the dead. So we can see kind of the development going on. We've got individuals in the prophets in the Tanakh. We've got kind of a larger conglomerate in the Maccabees and then a universal resurrection in Daniel. But it's it's pretty clear that Daniel is responding to the problem of the Maccabean uh, martyrs and the and the persecution of the Seleucids. So if a text like Daniel can talk about universal resurrection, it's pretty clear that universal resurrection as an idea would have existed prior to Daniel being written. And there's one more martyr in uh, in Second Maccabees 14 called Razis, and he's a, a righteous man. He's in the midst of battle against the Seleucids, and rather than fall into the hands of sinners, it says he falls on his sword, and but it doesn't doesn't kill him. In, instead, he kind of runs through the crowd, gets up on a kind of a rock above the people and starts ripping out his intestines and his organs and throwing them at people. Yeah, it is super graphic. The Maccabean literature is graphic no matter what, particularly 2nd Maccabees and 4th Maccabees are very, very graphic. And so he's throwing his entrails at people as he's dying, but telling his persecutors, that God is going to get these organs back into me. That is, God's, God's going to re-imbue my spirit and life into me in resurrection. So according to the Maccabean literature, and it really is a good reflection of how Jews were thinking in the Second Temple period, it's pretty clear that resurrect, the idea of resurrection from the dead is ubiquitous by the time we get to the Second Temple period. The Dead Sea Scroll writers are writing about it. Daniel's writing about it. Second Maccabees and Fourth Maccabees are writing about it. It's everywhere. Um, so it, so that that is by the time we get the Gospels, you know, 150 years later, um, it is well ensconced, this idea of resurrection from the dead. You know, sometimes resurrection sounds so Christian as opposed to Jewish, you know, because Jesus's resurrection is so central to Christian belief, which is not untrue. I mean, that is true. It's just that the quote unquote Christian belief is really a Jewish belief first. And then on to that point, the rabbis later on after the Gospels for them, the early rabbinic material, so the Midrash, the Talmud, um, I would say the materials from the time of Jesus in the first century up until about the sixth century CE, for them, resurrection is probably the most central notion of all. That is, it is so important to the rabbis. One rabbi in the Mishnah famously says, everybody who's born is destined to die, and everyone destined to die is destined to be raised from the dead. So, it's just not even a question. I mean, resurrection is so central to the rabbis. These are rabbis not following Jesus. You know, these are the rabbis that create what we would call modern Judaism today. 
The foundation is rabbinic Judaism, and rabbinic Judaism is replete with references to resurrection. So resurrection continues to be a central Jewish idea long after the resurrection of Jesus. So Christianity and Judaism share this very, very rich tradition throughout their, um, their existence. What? Okay, yeah. So let me know if any of that blows your mind. I think this whole course called Resurrection in Jewish Text and Traditions is fantastic. And if you haven't been a part of it yet, you may want to go ahead and sign up using the link in the episode notes of the show. And if you add in more of IBC's amazing courses, you can end up earning a certificate in Jewish context and culture. You can explore all of your options at israelbiblecenter.com. Thank you to Jeremy McDonald from Mason Jar Music for doing an amazing job editing, mixing, and adding in all of the really good music. Thank you for hanging out with me and being curious about all things Bible-related. 